Keeping your joy, the heartfelt theology of an isolated prisoner. Thinking of Paul writing from Roman prison to the church at Philippi. This Sunday and next, enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross of Christ. And the text we're looking at is Philippians 3, 17 to 21. So take your Bible out or turn it on or switch it on or however you do it. Philippians 3, 17 to 21. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, this is interesting, many of, of whom I have often told you, so this isn't something that Paul just dealt with once. This is something that Paul talked about with these people over and over. It wasn't an isolated incident. It wasn't a side event. This was thematic in something Paul addressed repeatedly with, with these people. 18, for many of whom I have often told you and, and now tell you, and this is the phrase, even, even with tears, they walk as, and here it is where I got the title, enemies. Enemies of the cross of Christ. It's not enemies of the golden rule or the Lord's prayer or the Sermon on the Mount. The, the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross of Christ. 19. Their, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. It's not talking about just what they eat, but appetites. Governed by appetites. That's the picture Paul paints with that. Their God is their belly. Their desires. The fulfillment of their appetites. And they glory in their shame. So it, it isn't just a matter of wrong deeds. It's a matter of a changed attitude. They're, they're proud. Proud of things. And encouraging others. Justifying. With minds set on earthly things. That is important. Set on earthly things. It's, it's not, these aren't all rapists and thugs and murderers, but earthly things. That, their appetites, their thinking, their goals are on earthly things. But our citizenship, here's the contract, earthly, earthly things, our citizenship is in heaven. From it, we await a savior that's interesting, eh? We talk about going to heaven. He's talking about what comes from heaven. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's his resurrected body. By the power that enables him even to subject or subdue in the King James all things to himself. Great text. Let's pray together. We need you to help us with our minds that get stuck in earthly things, especially when we approach your word. We need you to come and, and enlighten and give us understanding so that we don't just understand the nouns and the verbs and the adjectives, but we treasure the truth that they mobilize in our hearts. Bless your church here in this room and online as we study these words together, I pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. It's a fascinating text. I would say verse 17, verse 20. I'm not going to take the time to read them. 17, 20, and 21 are the easy verses. 18 and 19 are the hard ones. And they're hard because of the battle that kind of bubbles up around those, those people described as enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross of Christ. People who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And, and so, who are these people? Are they the same group Paul has just called uh, the dogs and evildoers in verse 2? You know, look out, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So are they these, these Judaizers who are pushing these Christians into the signs of the old covenant, the keeping of the law, circumcision as a tool for getting close to God, salvation, righteousness? And if that's the case, what, what does Paul mean when he describes them in 19? Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So is that, is that who these enemies are? These, these Judaizers who come to Christ, want to bring the old covenant with them, and have these Gentile believers adopt the regulations of the Old Covenant so they can be really spiritual and draw close to God? Or, are the enemies of the cross of Christ, are they the ones Paul already described as opponents in 128? Not frightened in anything by your opponents. Or are they a different group entirely? Christians who name Christ but just given over to material earthly pursuits. My own opinion, and we'll get to this, my opinion is these enemies of the cross of Christ are not the same group as the Judaizers that Paul mentions in 3, 1, and 2, and they aren't, they aren't the opponents that Paul describes in 128. But we'll come to that more next Sunday morning. I have four points. I hope four rememberable Simple points that come out of this text. We're going to look at two this morning, and we'll look at two next Sunday morning. So here's how I think this passage unfolds and how it relates to all of us today and those watching. Point number one. Paul's pretty clear we are to mark people who are good examples of what it means to, to count all things lost for the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. I get that in 3.17. Join me in, join in, in imitating me. And then he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. There's, there's a certain effort, isn't there? There's a certain effort Im implied here, a certain diligence. Keep, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. It, it, it implies that we're, we're prone to admire triteness, lightness, things that 
eternally don't count very much. Don't be drawn away, Paul says, from setting your attention, your eyes, look at people who are devoted to Christ. I think we know why. Truth always looks, truth always looks better in a life than just on paper. I mean, there are theological truths that even though they're wonderfully true, they don't shine in mere print. But if you see them lived out in somebody, they look incomparably wonderful when they, when they sort of blaze in a life that stands out radiant in loving and joyfully sacrificing all for Christ. And that's why when Paul talks about his own experience, how the gospel changed his life. He paints a picture contrasting his life before and after Christ. We looked at these verses. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, 3, 12 to 14. But I press on to make it my own. Now, now Paul is saying, copy that. Imitate me, he says. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but, but one, thing I, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. We looked at this last Sunday morning. I press on toward the goal for the prize. Isn't that an interesting, isn't that an interesting noun? Not just I'm trying to be a, a nicer person. There's a, he, 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 life in Christ is a prize. It's, it's something highly desirable, like a treasure, a prize. See, someone can tell you about life in Christ, but it won't shine like a prize. And then you see somebody pursuing it joyfully, and the life just starts to glow with a, an affection and a devotion to Christ. And you see, oh, it, it really is a prize. Oh, I see why Jesus said it's a treasure. As Paul will make clear in just a few minutes, not everyone who talks about Jesus and sings the songs and attends the services, not everyone who names Christ lives like that, I press on toward the prize. In fact, Paul will say quite pointedly that many, 3.18, many, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And so it, it becomes really a matter of life and death that these Christians, they, they seek out. Seek out, not common, empty professors of religion, but genuine pursuers of the prize of Christ. Why? Why is it so important? Well, here's why. Because, because if these people just hear about cross-centered spiritual living, but never actually see it, if they just hear about it, read about it, hear Paul preach about it, then they're only going to see it as a duty. 
without seeing it as something joyful and something beautiful, like winning a prize. But once they've rubbed shoulders with, with this kind of full-blooded uh, Christianity, then they'll, then they'll start to see it, two things. They'll see it as desirable. I want that. And they'll see it as possible. He's done it for so-and-so. He can do it for me. Once they see it fleshed out, they'll see it as desirable and they'll see it as possible. So, so let's start here. Please mark this first point carefully. If you don't have a tight, living, warm-blooded, one-flesh link with other passionate saints in a local church, your Christian walk will never have, it will never have the incredible boost of having the Holy Spirit stamp your soul with the encouragement and the example of someone else who is renouncing all for Christ and loving it. Your Christian life will be so much more difficult if all you are trying to do is follow some instructions on paper. But never see them fleshed out in brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. Never forget that. I said there were two points this morning. Look at this. We're halfway done. Point number two. A great indicator of the nature of your heart's treasure is what makes you weep. I get that in 3.18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There, there's, a kind of, there's a kind of weeping that gets talked about too often in the scripture to miss. It's like these words from Psalm 119, 136. My eyes shed streams of tears. So now he's going to say why. That's because, well, people don't keep your law. It's not, it's not that the psalmist isn't keeping God's law, but he's constantly around people that don't keep God's, God's ways. And he, and he says, Streams of tears. I can't stop weeping. I can't stop weeping. Make no mistake, these are not, these are not the tears of mere frustration and anger. That's all too common in this age where everybody protests everything that they don't like. Everyone's an activist. These tears, these tears are just the overflow of a, of a broken heart. They're, these are the same kinds of tears that you shed when a loved one lays dying of cancer. Just sorrow. Now, it's funny that those words come from Paul, because when you study the life of Paul, I don't think anyone would assess Paul as being kind of a touchy-feely sort of guy. At times, he has this 
He has this wonderful spiritual stubbornness. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Bring on the opposition. He makes tough, solid, logical decisions. He can argue with the best of them. He frequently goes against the grain. He doesn't seem to worry about it. He suffers a great deal, never losing the joy in his heart, just following Christ. But there are these times when you see him weeping, and they're really instructional. He wept. He wept as he warned of false teaching in the church at Ephesus. Look at Acts 20, 29 to, to 32. I know that after my, after my departure, look at this, fierce wolves will come in among you. And he says, I, I know that. Not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Now Paul says, therefore, be alert, remembering that, that for, for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul says, I was, I was weeping for three years. Three years. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. Paul, he leaves this church and he knows to Paul, to Paul, oh boy, we need to get this in our heads. False teaching wasn't just an intellectual problem for Paul. Notice carefully the way he words this text. False teaching, false ideas, they do to the mind and to the soul what a wolf does to a newborn lamb. Right there, wolves. So Paul wept over the careless reception of false teaching. People who didn't think it mattered. People who thought there were other options to biblical truth, and there weren't any options to it. And he says, for three years, for three years I wept. Here's another one. He wept as he rebuked the church at Corinth. You can see it in 2 Corinthians 2, 2 to 4. For if I cause you, he wrote correction to this church, strong correction and rebuke for immorality in the church. And he says, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? This person might repent. And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now in our Philippians text, 
3.18, he says the same thing for many whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, there it is again, many walk as enemies of the cross. They don't, they don't talk like they're enemies, but they walk like enemies of the cross of Christ. What a compact and yet fascinating verse, that 3.18. I wish we could just creep into Paul's head. What, what, was, what was churning in his heart? It's been there many times before because he said he often told them this. So, so we know this wasn't some strange new issue. This, it was a problem that Paul frequently brought to their attention. Here's what Paul knew. Paul knew that after he left, his was not the last teaching that this church would hear. That's what Paul knew. He says the same thing to the church at Ephesus that we read about in the book of Acts. After my departure, many will arise like wolves. So Paul knows he will teach and teach for three years in that one setting. And then he knows that as soon as he goes, other people are going to come and teach something different. It is always that way. They might not come here behind this pulpit, but you leave here and you'll hear all, you can read all sorts of things. Things that a generation ago nobody could even discover. You can all find out on the web, get a billion different views on any particular issue and have your own view endorsed. Group A, group B, they can be totally opposite. You know this. And they can go online and they can find experts backing their position, right? And then you know what we do? We fire websites at each other. Oh yeah, well look at this group said. Look at that group said. And so this is an age where This teaching, we study God's word, but we all know this isn't the only teaching everybody's going to get this week. Other ideas will come from all over the place. Paul said, I, I wept over that. People will think that all these options are viable for them as followers of Christ. There'll be pressure brought to bear on people to adopt views that don't line up with the teaching of Christ. And, they, they, and their peer pressure, they don't want to be out of step. They don't want to look intolerant. They don't want to look unloving. This is a very current problem. And so it moved Paul to tears because he knew his teaching would not be the last teaching the church would hear. Whenever, whenever somebody, like Paul in these verses, whenever someone repeatedly goes over the same ground again and again, often told you, Whenever someone goes over the same ground over and over again and yet is still unable to control the tears, then you've found that person's passion. What makes you weep? I've wondered recently if these words from Paul might not have been on Fanny Crosby's mind when she penned her famous hymn, remember? Weep, weep or the erring one. Lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Detachment is sometimes a virtue, but never when the minds and hearts and souls of people are concerned. It's, it's a sin to be unmoved. I don't think... 
I don't think the church will pray for an hour for the lost and for the rebellious until it weeps for an hour for the lost and for the rebellious. So I think we're meant to take these two aspects of Paul's testimony. If he's going to talk about who are enemies of the cross of Christ, now he's going to say, here are those who are devoted to the cross of Christ. First, first, here were the two points. Find examples of passionate faith that you can track down and keep, he says, Keep your eyes on stuff like that. The patterns and tastes that you emulate reveal the convictions that you actually care about. If you know more about the Kardashians than the disciples, you're not a follower of Christ. Quit pretending you are. And secondly, the things that make you weep. Reveal what your heart cherishes. The things you weep over reveal the presence of the Holy Spirit sort of driving your affections into eternal realities. It is always and ever the role of the Holy Spirit. It is always and ever the role of the Holy Spirit to make you indifferent to what is trite. Take that sentence with you. It is always and ever the role of the Holy Spirit to make you indifferent to what is trite and inconsequential. Make sure that those two things, godly examples that flesh out commitment to Christ and the things that break your heart and make you weep, take those two things, move them up your prayer list this week and just say, oh God, let those two things be settled and established more deeply in my heart. Let's pray. Your word, Lord. Your word and the blessed truths therein. These things are, are, these things are bigger than we think. They have more power in them, not because they came from Don Horbin, but because they're rooted they're rooted by your spirit in your word. These things have power to change our lives. And so I pray, Jesus, that you will just ever and always take seed of your community church, take your word, plant the seed, and let it sprout, germinate, start to grow, get bigger and bigger and bigger in our minds and in our hearts. Bless us now as we worship around your throne that it wouldn't just be emotion, but these two ideas we would take and then make the songs a prayer that your word be fulfilled in our hearts and lives this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.